Well, let's get started. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited for today's webinar. Uh, I am the CEO of Resume Spice, Keith Wolf. I'm also the managing director of Murray Resources, a national recruiting firm here in, in Houston. And together we're bringing you this webinar. I'm extremely excited about today's webinar because I've got someone on who I first was introduced to maybe six or seven years ago. I heard him speak at a Vistage event. So for folks who don't know what Vistage is, it's a CEO networking roundtable where you meet with other CEOs and, and leaders and you hear some of the best speakers around the country and really the world. And to this day, Cameron Harold is one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Uh, something that I recall specifically is he's, he spoke better than I could ever speak if I was paying full attention. And it was when he was answering questions at the very end and packing his bags up and literally he packed his bags up and answered the audience questions and just walked off the stage. And I, I don't know if that was intentional, but it was just left to, you know, here we are six or seven years later and I'll never forget that. I'm like, if I was fully looking at the person, I couldn't have answered the question that coherently. So, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, you can address that in a second if you remember that. Um, so Cameron, he wrote he wrote a book called Double Double that uh, you know after hearing him talk, I read that book and that book's premise is you know how can you double your company's profits and revenues in three years? You know, putting a plan in place and part of that plan is something he calls and refers to as a painted picture. You know, how your company's going to look, feel, and act. You know, during that time and, and you very deliberately lay that out. So our company did that. And lo and behold, three years later, we hit our goals. So I'm obviously a big believer in, in what Cameron preaches. And he's, he's just had a lot of amazing experiences, amazing success in his career. Let me just touch on your bio here, Cameron. And then I'm going to take that's all the time for the intro. And then we'll kind of get into some of the questions. Sure. So Cameron is a top business consultant, a best-selling author, speaker, He's a mastermind behind hundreds of companies' exponential growth. He's touched thousands of businesses directly and indirectly through his work. By age 21, he had 14 employees. By 35, he'd helped two $100 million companies grow. By the age of 42, he'd engineered 1-800-GOT-JUNK spectacular growth from $2 million to $106 million in six years. His companies landed over 5,200 media placements in those six years, including coverage on Oprah. He's the author of the global best-selling book, Double Double, which I just referenced. It's in its eighth printing. He's also written Meeting Suck, Vivid Vision, Free PR, and Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. He has been paid to speak on 26 different countries. He's also the founder of COO Alliance. It's a group that provides high-level leadership and training and support for COOs, VPs of operations, GMs, and presidents who run company-wide operations. And last but not least, he is the host of a podcast called Second in Command, where he interviews top-level COOs about their insights, tactics, and strategies. So anytime I give a bio like that, I feel pretty bad about myself, but um, that's why you're speaking and I'm not. So let's, uh, let's get into it. So welcome, Cameron, for being with us. It's great to hey, have you. Hey, thanks very much. Appreciate it. And yeah, to, to address that comment about me answering questions while packing up my bag, I have 17 of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder. And when I, when I'm in a kind of like, it's when I'm in motion, it's like a body in motion stays in motion. Mm -hmm. When I realize, okay, the talk is over, I have to leave. I kind of turn to the bag and I start doing the next thing. And then I realize, even as I'm answering questions, I stopped packing my bag, but it's kind of like, I can't stop that momentum. And I, I know that I shouldn't even be doing it. I end up doing it anyway. It's this bizarre 
thing that I do. And so I'm in my head. Uh, yeah, it's weird. That's really interesting. Hey, well, we never would have known that. It was just, you had places to go and, and you're just, <laughs> that's what it looked like. Well, it it's fine. I did a speaking event recently where I showed up and their um, AV system didn't work. And I had to do a 90 minute presentation off the top of my head. And we did 90 minutes. They gave me a whiteboard and I just went off the top of my head for 90 minutes. So I'm, I'm really good with that Q&A style and yeah. presentation. But thanks. I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. So let's just let's start. You know, I gave your bio, but I, I really I, I want to dig into 1-800-JUNK because that's what initially sort of put you on the map and to kind of set the stage for you know, some of your experience. I mean, you had the experience of being there when it was a couple million and then growing that to, to 100 million plus over six years. So talk a little right. bit about, you know, how you even got started and then the process, just spend a couple of minutes if you could kind of, you know, what the growth was like and what it was like being there and, and some of those challenges. Sure. And then I, I want to go, after we do that, I want to go backwards before that and talk sure. a little bit about College Pro Painters um, sure. because that's, that's really where I learned everything. Oh, feel feel free things. to start there. Feel free to start there. If it, yeah, let, let's do that. So, so College Pro Painters in university, I was awarded a franchise of this house painting company. And, you know, in Texas, you probably wouldn't know of College Pro, but if you're in many of the other states in the U.S., you might. It went on to become the largest residential house painting company in the world. Um, every year, I, would, I ended up being at the head office. I was a franchisee for three years, one of 800 franchisees. And I was one of the top franchisees. I was in the top kind of eight to 10 in, in their, their group. Um, I went on to work at the head office where I was in charge of recruiting and hiring and training franchisees. Um, and then there were only 60 of us at the head office. I was in the top 30 people. And every year we had to recruit, hire and train 800 franchisees. And then in one month, we had to train those 800 franchisees how to go out and recruit, hire and train 8,000 painters. And we did it in 30 days. And then between May 1st and August 31st, we produced $64 million in house painting. And then September 1st, 8,800 university kids quit and went back to school. The 60 of us got drunk and we woke up the next day and did it again. So for four, for four years, I had to add 8,800 people in four months and did it four years in a row. So we became operationally world-class at interviewing, recruiting, training, and onboarding of people. And then on the operational side of the business, I learned how to do operations. I hired Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, back in 93, and also his cousin who went on to build Solar City. I recruited and trained both of them in 93. Um, in fact, Elon references College Pro Painters in his book as the reason for them getting funding for their first company, Zip2, when they only had one employee, I had to be a reference for them and had to explain what Kimball knew at College Pro Painters because Elon was unbankable. So that's really where, that's where I learned everything. Um, and then I built two other companies after that, one that went on to become Gerber Auto Collision in the US. It's now the largest collision repair chain in the world. Uh, I started with them at seven locations. It's now a $900 million company. Uh, we built it up to about 70 locations and then took it public. And then I was part of a private currency company where we were adding three employees a day for about probably 90 days and got up to about 900 people. And then the stock market crashed and we had to start firing 150 at a time. So that was all prior to joining my best friend at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Mm -hmm. I walked into 1-800-GOT-JUNK as the 14th employee. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. 
I had been in charge of everything except IT and finance. So I ran sales, operations, PR, marketing, the call center, franchise sales, our corporate operations. We opened up into four countries. We were operating in 43 states, nine provinces and four countries. Ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. So we became really well known for being a strong culture. And when I left there 14 years ago, I started coaching companies, typically 50 to 500 employees. But I've coached the CEO of Sprint. I coached the second in command at Sprint for 18 months. I've coached a lot of technology companies. And I'm known for building cults, for turning companies into talent magnets. That would be what I'm really known for. I coached the current number two company in the United States to work for on Glassdoor. I've coached the number three and number 12 companies to work for in the US on Glassdoor. I coached them to get there because they weren't even on before. I coached two companies that went on to rank number one to work for in Australia, uh, built the number two company in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of my zone of, of expertise. In terms of how we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, the first things I did when I got there with Brian, I said, there's three things that we have to do. The first one is we have to raise our prices by about 40 or 50% because no one's making money. We're not making money. The franchisees aren't making money. Our guys in the truck aren't making money. We need to charge more and position ourselves as the FedEx of junk removal or the Starbucks of junk removal. We can't be the Walmart of junk removal, right? We have to have them profit and then we have to deliver. So that was the first thing. Second thing was we have to turn our company into a little bit more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. We have to get into that zone of a cult, which means we have to attract and hire A players mm -hmm. and, and really work hard at building out that culture machine. And then thirdly, we have to tell our story to the media because we have no money for advertising. But if we talk about how great our culture is, if we talk about the vivid vision for what our company is gonna look like, the media will tell that story and will attract more franchise partners and more employees to work for us. So that became our obsession was building the cult telling the media and delivering on all of our promises. So early on when, when you're getting started, first of all, you had the confidence when, when you, where did all that confidence come from? Was it, was it delivering it at the, you know, the painting company? Was it, was it earlier than that? So how do you even have the confidence to come in and, and, and do what you did? It's, it's, it's both. So there's confidence and massive insecurity at the same time. So the, the confidence came, yes, out of college pro painters because I was trained on how to follow systems and run them and I executed really well and it all worked. So I realized that if there's a system, follow it mm -hmm. and the shortcuts will create momentum and momentum creates momentum, not perfection. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just, they gave me a system. I did it. It was successful. Rinse and repeat, do it again, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. And then, and then because I was then coaching, I started coaching entrepreneurs 32 years ago before coaching was even a thing, right? So by, by 1994, I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs. Coaching didn't even become a thing until kind of 2000. Mm -hmm. So because I was then coaching entrepreneurs and seeing them being successful, that gave me the confidence to then do it with the auto body business and then do it with the, the private currency company. And it kept working. So I just built that, that confidence that this works. And I also knew how to stay in my lane. Mm -hmm. I knew where I was really weak and just to avoid that. Um, you know, in the school system, they say, get a tutor for what you're weak at mm -hmm. in business. You hire people who are good at that and you stay away from it. So mm -hmm. I learned to stay away from it and stay in my zone. Um, yeah. And my insecurities are, I, I, I hate going to cocktail parties or I, I even, even going to a speaking event, I get, I, you can't even hear it in my voice right now. I get nervous and anxious 
I'd rather stand on stage and speak to a thousand people. And I've had companies pay me to go and speak in 26 countries, but I'm nervous walking around beforehand. I'm, I'm amazing on stage and I'm amazing with the group and I'm fine afterwards if people come to me, but I, I hyperventilate. I'm extraordinarily nervous to walk into a group. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I know a lot of people can, can, uh, uh, empathize with that they, they have yeah. a similar experience but maybe not the stage part i don't know if most people feel comfortable on the stage but right they feel comfortable going to a cocktail party yeah. they hate going on stage right yeah. you know that most most speakers if you ever by the way here's a tip for you if you ever want to meet a speaker contact them before the event and say hey i'm not sure what you're doing the night before your event but if you want to grab dinner a couple ceos and i are going to or a couple whatever's and i are going to go grab dinner they will always say yes because they're sitting in their hotel room doing nothing mm. And after they speak, they're slammed. Forget it. You can't right. talk to them after they speak because right. there's a lineup. Right. But bre breakfast before, going for a run before, go for a hike with them before, go for dinner the night before, they'll always say yes to that. Yeah, that, may, that makes sense. That's a good point. So let, let's talk about, you know, you hired a lot of different types of people throughout your career. Mm -hmm. uh, what sort of traits, let's start with sort of entry level because that's what you're looking for first. And those folks typically don't have much of a resume. So how are you making hiring decisions? You know, let's start with sort of folks earlier in their career and then let's talk about some, you know, going sure. later. My, my understanding and my training was that behavioral traits have been exhibited by the individual since they were young. Mm -hmm. So let's say as an example, you're looking for someone who's going to be a strong leader, mm -hmm. but you're hiring 22 year olds. Mm -hmm. So you know, they haven't been as a manager in a company yet, but maybe they were the top Cub Scout or maybe they were in their church youth group, or maybe they were on student council, or maybe they were captain of a sports team, or maybe they were the kid that rallied all their friends to go play pickup baseball. Mm -hmm. Leadership traits are exhibited at a very young age. Goal orientation, you know, people that are driven and focused. I mean, I had goal orientation back to seven. Like, why was I top cub, top scout on student council? Why was mm -hmm. I doing all these sports? I was driven, I was driven, I was driven. You know, you could talk to me about goals that I had when I was 10 and I could tell them what, tell you what they were and if I hit and when I struggled, mm -hmm. you could look at tenacity, you know, where I struggled and where I failed and where I worked harder and where I practiced and books that I read. So traits are exhibited at very, very young age. And the problem in most companies, most managers in most companies have never had any training on interviewing, mm -hmm. which is really sad. If you think that, you know, you would never send your kid off to play little league baseball without teaching them how to hold the bat and how to toss the ball and catch the ball. Cause your kid would come home from baseball and say, baseball sucks. It's like, no, Johnny, you suck at baseball. Right. Well, the reason that interviews are so bad is because most of our managers have never had even an hour's training. They don't know how to screen a resume. They don't know what behavioral traits are. They don't know how to define behavioral traits. They don't know how to look for them. They don't know how to rate them on a bell curve. They don't know how to debate with other interviewers on where the person really was they're not sure how to assign behavioral traits on a role by role basis. Cause I'll tell you, salespeople's behavioral traits are very different from HR people's. Mm -hmm. right? There's not a good salesperson on the planet that will ever make it through an HR person screening process because HR people hate salespeople. Salespeople are making it up. They shoot from the hip. They're winging it. They don't follow systems. They're outside of the box that doesn't exist mm -hmm. in HR. It's policies and procedures and follow the rules there, there are no policies and procedures for sales, right? So you have to figure, again, most managers don't know that stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that, that's kind of my starting point with companies is really making sure that they A, understand there's a gap 
In fact, I have a course, I told you about it earlier, but I'm launching a course on Monday called Invest in Your Leaders. And one of the 12 modules in the Invest in Your Leaders course is an interviewing course. That's really, if I was to think about like a bronze, silver, or gold at a skill, it's going to get people to a solid bronze or silver for sure. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be certified as, is you know, Jeff Smart in top grading or his dad, Brad, Brad Smart, who wrote top grading, like, but you'll be pretty darn good. Yeah. yeah. And I think most companies miss on that. So at College Pro Painters, we received a lot of training on interviewing. Mm-hmm. We, we, we did tons of role plays and practices on open-ending questions, closed questions, you know, reference checks, torque, screening through a resume, pregnant pauses, setting up a room, reversing the cell, like all kinds of skills. Mm-hmm. And then we learned how to find what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. And I, I would bring all of those skills through to any of the companies that I coach or built as well. Let's talk, let's talk about your, your process for finding people. So all the way from the writing the job description or whatever it starts to the onboarding. What's, sure. your, what's your approach? So my process first starts with what are the key things the person has to get done in their first year with me? Right? What are maybe the five big projects they have to get completed in their first year? And then what are the behavioral traits they need in that role to exhibit? And then what are our company core values? And I want to make sure that they already live those core values as well. So I'm going to look for people that have done what I need them to do. I'm not looking for people that know how to do it. You know, like, do you, if let's say we had to hire a swimmer and this is a weird analogy, but trust me, it works. If we, if, if you wanted to hire a great swimmer, would you want to hire someone that knows how to break a world record? and knows how to win an Olympic gold and knows how to do all four strokes? Or would you want to hire someone that has broken a world record, has won Olympic gold and has competed in all four strokes? Mm -hmm. Very different from knowing how, and there's lots of educated people that have read books or gone to school, but they've never done it. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is look, what do I need them to do? And have they done it before and to what level? What behavioral traits do they need to have? And do they live them and exhibit them? And how do I know? And then are they already people that live our core values, you know, four or five strong core values that we would fire people if they break them. That's my starting point. From there, that scorecard, I then build a job description. Once I get the job description, it's usually the hiring manager or the department manager will get the first part of the job description done. Someone in HR might polish it, but then I take it from HR and I hand it to a copywriter, either an in-house copywriter or I'll, I'll spend 300 bucks to an outside copywriter to polish it, somebody even off Upwork, and take the job posting and make it like a marketing letter, like a sales letter. Something that's like, whoa, that actually is going to attract me, and it's going to push some candidates away. And then I push that out high, wide, and handsome. Like, I really, really push that job posting out to everywhere, and I use it like a recruiting tool to bring people into the office. But I don't look at any resumes that get sent in at all. As soon as a resume gets sent in, we kick back an auto reply and we go, thanks for your resume. Please read this vivid vision, this five page description of what our company looks like, acts like, and feels like three years from now. And read this article about, you know, article in the media about our company. And then reply with a two to three minute video of what you love about our vivid vision and how you want to make it come true and how you think you'll excel in your role. If we like your video, we'll bring you in for a group interview. So I will only look at the resumes of the people that submit videos that I like. If I don't like their video, and I'm not going to watch three minutes. If it sucks at 20, 20 seconds, done. Mm. But if it's good, if it grabs my attention and energy like that cult, 
Then I'll look at the resume to see if they have the rough skills. And then I'll do a group interview. But for me, the group interview is six to eight candidates at the same time. And I'm only looking for two things. First thing is their cultural fit with the behavioral traits and the, and the core values of the organization. Like, do they fit, right? Regardless of the role, are they the right kind of energy and people? And, and I'm not saying that they all have to be the same personality profile, but do they fit the DNA and the core values and the traits that we need? And then secondly, are they strong leaders? And I want payroll clerks that are leaders. I want frontline marketing staff that are leaders. I want guys in the trucks that'll put their hands up and say, I disagree. I, I want leadership at all levels. After the group interview, and you can interview six to eight people over Zoom, and I can talk through a system that I use for that. We select a couple of people from that to do very in-depth one-on-one interviews, and then you can do a second one-on-one -on -one interview, and then your reference checks. That's kind of the, the overall view of the process I use. Got it. Yeah, I find it a couple of things, a couple of observations. One is you write the job description for who you want, but also for who you don't want, right? So yeah. you're, you're good repelling people away, and it's probably more efficient way. I want to scare the shit out of people. Like, I want to tell you, this is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done, but you'll love it. Like, you're going to be working like crazy, but you're going to dig it. We are a strong culture. And if you don't like to be at company events, don't come here. Right. Yeah. But then other people are like, fuck yeah, sign me up. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, do, I, don't, I don't love that I swear, but I've actually written the F bomb in and like the full word in a job posting because I was recruiting somebody that needed to work very closely to me. And the last thing I wanted was them three or four months in going, oh, he swears too much. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. But my employees don't quit either. I've got, I've got, I've got an employee, a friend coming for dinner tonight that worked at 1-800-GOT-JUNK 14 years ago coming for dinner. Like my team loved me, yeah. but they, they understood me. But that was because I pushed away anybody that wouldn't love me. Yeah. And then, and then the video, you know, I think that's, that's pretty unique. I don't know a lot of companies. I think that they're, they're, starting to be more part of the process, but very specifically putting together a video that they send out is- yeah, I've, used, I've used a video for about eight, nine years and it's simple. And I, I had somebody that I was hiring a year ago, he sends me a video, he's like, sorry, it's during COVID. I know I've got the laundry behind me. I'm like, dude, you could have at least moved the pile of laundry. Like, Come on, right? right. Like there's, there's something to be, so I was just like, I'm not even gonna watch your video. You're clearly just not gonna be the guy. Yeah. Uh, what What are some of your favorite interview questions? It depends on it depends on what I'm looking for. So I I'll give you an example. Years ago, this is this is a, a long time example, but it's in a really good example of how deep I'll probe. I needed someone who is really really good at project management and time management because they were going to have a lot of complexity, a lot of multiple projects. They really had to manage time, not using like Gantt charts and, and project management software, but just the ability to multitask and get a bunch of stuff done and hit deliverables. So I needed somebody who was good at time management. So I'm asking this person in the interview and he's giving me all the stuff, but it sounds to me like it's right out of a textbook. Mm -hmm. Like it was like a professor teaching you time management. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, if he did it, that was going to be amazing. So I, I said, do you do this? He's like, yeah. I'm like, where's your daytimer? So this is how, how long ago it was. It was like 18 years ago, 17 years ago. I said, where's your daytimer? He goes, it's out in the car. I said, is everything you described, like your, your monthly goals, your weekly goals, your daily goals, the A's and B priorities, numbering your A's, putting them into the calendar at the right time? Because it's all in my calendar. I said, great, where's your daytimer? He goes, out in the car. I said, okay, cool, go grab it. He goes, why? I said, I just want to flip through it. You can keep it on your side of the table. Just flip through it and show me because if I see that that level of detail and understanding time management is being used by you, I can give you a five out of five on that trait. 
So go grab the daytime or I'll just grab a coffee. Come on back in and we'll, we'll start the chat. So I grab coffee. I sit down. I've never seen him since. <laughs> I thought that was going to go one of two ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're not willing to do that kind of, I did another one where I did a reference check with the guy and I made him stand at my desk as I called his boss and asked his boss what he was like. And his boss said, oh my God, you got my best guy. But he didn't want me to call. I'm like, no, you stand here and I'll call your boss. And if you're that good, I'm hiring you. Right? Yeah. He and I are, he and I are still friends to this day, 18 years later. Um, one of my favorite interview questions in the group interview. Mm -hmm. So let's say I've got seven candidates sitting in that group interview. My second last question is always, if I was hiring two people, you plus someone else at this room, who else should I hire and why should I hire them? Hmm. And what happens is the strongest leaders will sell you on hiring somebody else. They were also paying attention and they can repeat stuff that that person was saying. And all of a sudden the seven people are all pointing in the direction of one or two. They did my job for me. I bring in those one or two people and I grill them based on the resume and I know who I can bring forward. And then my second last question, and this is legal in every state and province, is how much money do you need to make this year? And how much money would you like to be making in three years? And person number one will be like, I need 100. Next guy needs, I need 98. Woman's like, I need 97. Next guy's need, I need 95, but I'll, you know, or I need 100, but I'll work for 95. Mm -hmm. They compete and their price actually comes down. When you do one-on-one -on -one interviews, they're all like, oh, I need 120. Where's that number come from? Mm -hmm. So you're asking this in a group. They yeah. can all hear each other's answers. Yeah, and then, then they actually tell you the truth. Hmm. Interesting. And it's legal. Interesting. Well, so let's let's flip the flip the coin a little bit because we had we have folks on here who are company leaders currently, you know, running companies, heads of HR, and we also have folks who might be in, in between gigs and looking sure. for a role they're interviewing. And let, let's talk about I always think it's interesting to ask the folks who are hiring how they would answer the questions, some of the most dreaded questions that people get. One of the big ones right now is this career gaps, right? So having yeah. a career gap on your resume, a lot of folks have it, you know, with COVID, you know, more so than ever. How would you, how would you like someone to address that? A career well, for, gap first off, I've, I've actually been trained to go through the resume and look for the gaps and make notes on the physical paper copy about the gaps to ask myself some questions to then probe about it. Mm -hmm. Most interviewers don't even know to look for gaps in a resume. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about the four year gap or the 12 month gap. I'm talking about, I left in September. I started in October. I'm like, all right, why'd you leave that job? What wasn't going well? Why yeah. didn't you address stuff with your boss? What, how, who did you talk to before you decided to quit? Did you really quit or was it mutual? Was it mutual or were you fired? Like, yeah. and I'll ask 20 questions about, about why they moved to the next, like, were you poached? You know, did somebody recruit you? Mm -hmm. there's so much to learn about just that transition from the one to the other, let alone what happened in between. Mm -hmm. So what's, what, what are some good responses? I mean, what are some, so if someone's dealing with this and they, let's say they have a three or four month gap and you get this question all the time, like how do I overcome a, a career gap? Tell the truth. Yeah. The reality is as soon as anybody decides to make something up in an interview, our human computer goes, wait, bullshit meter, bullshit meter, bullshit meter. You're making something up because your resident, your tone changes, mm -hmm. your body language changes. Your, tell the truth. I mm -hmm. was struggling. I got a little depressed. I didn't know where to go. I got confused. I decided to take some time off. I went on a trip, whatever. And then I decided to kick back in again. Okay, that seems normal. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you start making something up, well, I was working on my uh, bullshit. 
mm-hmm. fine. And then it's, you're dead. It's over. Yeah. Just tell the truth. Okay. I like it. And if folks have questions, other questions that they want the answer to, I'm actually not looking at the chat right now, but I'll open it up in just a second. Just fire them off. Um, another one we get a lot is someone's biggest weakness. You know, it's asked almost every single interview and folks struggle with that. And Hey, you know what? My biggest, my biggest weakness is I'm a perfectionist. I try too hard. I never leave the office. People have to tell me to stop. You know, that's kind of what people think the right answer is, but it's so cliche. We know it's not. So yeah. what, is, what is a good answer to their biggest weakness? Well, the, 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 the first part is for the interviewer is never, ever give somebody that question. Don't say, tell me what your weakness is. So what I do is I say, look, I want you to tell me what your weakness is, but don't give me a fluffy one like I'm too organized. I want you to give me one that's going to piss me off and drive me crazy. And if you don't tell me that, I'm going to chase you down the street with a baseball bat after you work here. So tell me the good shit now that's going to drive me nuts. And I kind of say it in that tone and I laugh and then they go, I suck at whatever. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it's better for you as as a candidate to say, well, I know you don't want to hear that I'm too detail oriented because that's the real, I'm just going to give you the real one. You know what? I really suck at this but I'm good at finding people who can help me with it, but no, I'm really bad at it, but I'm good at this, this, and this. Yeah. Again, we're so, our computers are so strong that if you, if the bullshit meter goes off, just tell the truth, own it, and then explain, I'm not supposed to be good at everything. Nobody's good at everything. You don't have to say, are you? Just say, no right. one's good at everything. Right. I suck at this and I avoid that stuff, but I'm really good at these. Yeah. And then people go, okay. Finally, who's telling the truth? Well, you know, I think sometimes people are so concerned about giving the honest answer because they just want the job. But the reality is the interviewer knows the role better than you do. And so if you're honest about your shortcomings, they're not going to maybe hire you for that role that you're going to be miserable in. And six months later, you might get the role, but you're going to be miserable. So you might as well be honest. Well, and again, it's also that when when you tell the truth, it resonates and it comes off differently, right? Mm -hmm. So... I think that's the power of all this stuff is just to be able to, um, to just own it. Because like here, I'll give you an example for me. I'm terrible at writing. I've written five books, but I, I spoke all of them and then had writers polish it mm. for me. But I can't, every time I write an email, I piss somebody off. <laughs> I, sent, I sent my best friend a happy birthday message. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing. I said, happy birthday. He goes, I know that's it. I'm like, dude, what, <laughs> how do I upset you when I said happy birthday? <laughs> Right. So, so I just tell people that, right? Yeah. I'm bad at finance. I'm really bad at IT. I'm terrible in those areas. Yeah. We, t- we talked a little bit about early in your in folks' career, kind of what you're looking for when they don't have a great resume. What about when you're hiring the, the cream of the crop the, at the top levels where everybody's got a great resume, everybody's got big, great backgrounds? How do you separate uh, at that level? I know when we're doing executive research, it's yeah. sort of, everyone's got a great background. Well, so, so I'll give you a very specific example. Um, this is 2006. We were hiring our head of finance to replace our, our VP of finance who'd been with us for five years. And we needed a very seasoned senior head of finance, a real CFO, a proper CFO, not a controller with a CFO title, but a CFO. And um, you know, we were a $100 million business. And we're interviewing, we got it down to, t- t- we used two, two executive search firms, one retained, one contingency. We did all of our own networking. Like we pulled out the guns to get the right person, right? I've always believed, by the way, you use an executive search firm to poach great people and you use all your own recruiting efforts at the same time, but you don't, you're, 
the best employees are not looking for a job. They're working in a job. The best employees are not on industry job boards. That's where your C players play. So recruiters get you the book anyway. So we hired a recruiting firm, two of them, to help us. We got all the candidates. We narrowed it down to three, did the interviews for three, narrowed it down to two. And we knew their skills were good, but we also didn't know the skill area well enough to interview them. Mm. So we brought in our, our accounting firm and an M&A firm to interview them for the skill set that we needed. And we interviewed them for cultural fit. So our, our real experts interviewed them for the domain expertise because that was above our pay grade. But then we interviewed them for cultural fit. And we came down to two and we're like, God, this one guy's really good, but this one woman's really amazing. I wanted her because I wanted more. I wanted another woman on the team. And I'm like, I need to know more. And then I looked at their addresses on the resume and they both lived in my neighborhood. So I'm like, I'm just going to drive by their house. There's no law that says you can't drive by their house. It's an address. They gave it to me. It's, it's, it was, it was the, that it was prior to Facebook. So it was, it was now you'd go on their social media accounts, right? right? Back then. So I drove by their house. The one guy's house, which is very beige. It was just kind of like beige, nondescript. I was like, well, that's boring. And then I go to Trisha's place and I drive by it. I'm like, wow, this is really cute. I like this place. And she had her, her living room blinds open. I'm like, I can kind of see in from the road. This is like, this is exactly who we're hiring. And it just, she just felt like Brian and myself and sure she felt like us. Interesting. She was amazing. The first, yeah, she like culturally aligned. So when you know that you have the skill set, you have to hire for culture fit first, yeah. skill set second. But that's how you pick between the best skills is who culturally. And for me, it's also like my, our core purpose at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was to help entrepreneurs make their dreams happen, but it was building a world-class brand. Mm -hmm. We wanted somebody who was obsessed about building a world-class brand. We wanted somebody who was like an entrepreneurial culture fit. You know, if they were too corporate, they weren't going to fit. Right. So you just interview for that. Hmm. Well, I, I want to ask you about when folks don't work out. Um, you, ha you have a, I've, I've heard you talk about it, you know, hiring employees, nobody likes to do it, but everybody has to at some point in their career if they're in leadership. So yeah. Talk a little bit about that, your approach. Um, I, I know there's a there's a story that, that you've told before about having to let somebody go. And so go into that if you can a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So um, when you have doubt, you have no doubt is is the one that's always worked for me. Is like when you know, you got to make the cut. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I've also always believed if the person has the right culture and core values, first try to get them into the right seat. And then if you can't get them into the right seat, try to coach them. But if they have the wrong core values and the wrong results, or they're just the wrong core values, regardless of the results, you got to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. So years ago we had, I was having breakfast with a mentor. It was seven 30 in the morning. I've always had mentors. I've always paid for coaching or gotten into mastermind groups, or I've always worked on my, my skills for 25 years and uh, having breakfast with this mentor and, and it was seven 30 in the morning and we were at Denny's and he said, you know, is there anybody, you know, in your company that you have to fire. I'm like, yeah, I've got this one guy. And he said, what's his name? I said, Tyler. He said, how long have you known you should fire Tyler? And I was like, I don't know, six months. And he said, so why haven't you fired Tyler yet? And I started giving him all these reasons. And he listened for a couple of minutes and he said, so basically you're chicken. And I went, yeah, pretty much. And he said, uh, he said, when are you going to fire Tyler? And I said, I'll do it by Friday. And he shook his head. He said, first off, don't ever tell me when you're going to do something by, tell me when you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And secondly, Friday's not soon enough. And I said, fine, I'll do it tomorrow. He shook his head. I said, fine, I'll do it today. He said, what time today? I said, I'll fire him at 12 o'clock today. He said, good, call me at 1230, because I know this is going to be a really tough one for you because he's one of your friends. But he said, you make darn sure you're there for Tyler. Because he said, every day for the last six months, you've destroyed the will of a human being. You've known for six months that you should fire him. And since then, you've picked on him. You've excluded him. You've been pissed off at him. You've shown him all the stuff he's failing at. You've pulled him out of meetings. And he's trying his best, but you failed him as a leader because you're not comfortable enough to let him go. So fire him, but it's your job to make sure that he gets back on his feet and he's successful again. I go back to the office, it's 8 a.m. Tyler's sitting there, I'm like, hey Ty, can I grab you for a sec? And Tyler was the guy that got us on Oprah. He was the guy that landed the Oprah Winfrey show for us. He'd landed 500 articles about our company. He was amazing. But he was, he was wickedly bipolar. He was way more manic than, than Brian and I both are and much more stressed and depressed than Brian and I would get even though we're both bipolar. He had, he had the inability to control his emotions and it was getting too hard for us as the company was big. He just couldn't fit culturally inside of the company anymore. So it was the right time. Anyway, I, we, we walk into the boardroom, close the door and I turned, we didn't even sit down. I turned around to say something and he had tears in his eyes and I got tears in mine and he said, what took you so long? I didn't even have a chance to say anything. And I said, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, he goes, this is the right thing, but you should have done it three months ago. He said, I told my mom three months ago, you're going to fire me. He goes, I'm the guy that got us on Oprah, but he goes, I know this is the right decision, but why did you wait so long? And I basically replayed my discussion. I thought you could change. I wanted to try to help you. You got us on Oprah. <laughs> like, and, uh, Anyway, Tyler left. We named a room at the company after him. We did coach and mentor him. We got him an outplacement firm to help him and uh, started his own PR company up. I got email letters and phone calls and texts from him for years saying thank you for one time saying thank you for setting me free. Thank you for making such a hard decision, but it ended up being one of the best of my career. And then about seven years ago, I got a phone call that Tyler had gone out on a hike and had gone missing. And we've never found the body. It ended up being the largest search in BC history in, Can in Vancouver, a 7,700 hour search and rescue team. Tyler had gone on a five day hike that hadn't been done in 80 years and he never survived and they never found the body. I can live with myself because I know I set him free. I wish I'd done it sooner. And that's probably my hardest part as an employer, as a boss is when you know, the hard part for me is going from when I'm not sure to when I know. The second part of that saying is I let a second guy go that same day. I, I knew on the drive home, I got to get this other guy out too. So I let him go too. And you do it with integrity and with empathy and, and it goes fine. Like they were both friends of mine. One of them, Cam Malik asked me for a reference three years later, even though I'd fired him. Um, the second part is cut deep, cut once. You know, if, if you know you're firing multiple people, take a look across the teams and see who else has to go and do it at once. Mm -hmm. Because if you do one or two now, and then one or two in three weeks and one or two in three weeks, it's like the earthquake. And then the aftershocks, mm -hmm. it's the aftershocks that scare everybody. Mm -hmm. The earthquake we got over, but it's all the tremors that just give us the, the PTSD. Well, your employees that are left, the survivor guilt and the problems they have, because you had the inability as a leader to lead, that's your job. So, yeah. Wow. I know that, that that resonates with a lot of people. I don't know that I, I heard the second part of Tyler. 
So yeah, I I led the uh, I led the PR experts for, for we we did a big PR search. Brian, the CEO, did the fundraising for it. Um, we had low flying planes, helicopters, ATVs, dogs. Seventy seven hundred hour search with search and rescue and never found them. I, I know that you know letting people go is one of the most difficult things that, that somebody does, and uh, you know we've all had to do it. And I've had folks have the same reaction. I, I can't believe you. I didn't say why didn't you do it sooner, but thank you for. It was actually thank you for not doing it sooner. You, you probably should let me go a while ago. Yeah, it's it's almost always they know. It's almost yeah. always they know. There's a data point that I thought was really interesting from the group at Top Grading. I'm friends with Brad Smart who wrote Top Grading and his son Jeff Smart who wrote Who. Um, there's a data point that they came out with about 15 years ago that the cost of the wrong employee is 15 times their annual salary. So if you're paying somebody 100 grand a year and they're the wrong person, it's costing your company about 1.5 million in opportunity cost and mistakes and frustration and the negativity they bring in, in the A player that quits because they can't work with that jerk anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to get the wrong people off the bus. Most companies don't work hard enough to get the wrong people off the bus. Mm -hmm. You know, we all talk about recruiting and interviewing and selection and onboarding and training, but what about getting the wrong people off the bus as Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, right? Yeah, and I want, I want to ask you a question that's almost impossible for anyone to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm interested to hear what you're your response is because I know a lot of people probably on this on this call are probably in I shouldn't say a lot of people but I know there are some people who are not satisfied in their careers or finding it unfulfilling maybe they're not performing maybe maybe they're going to be fired maybe they're not but either way they're not satisfied where they are quit yeah I was going to say what's what's your yeah, advice quit. no quit quit break up with your partner quit, um, move cities to change whatever like stop you're in control of your life. Like you're going to be okay. A lot of this is our first world problem bullshit that you, we make up in our minds. Like if you're not happy, change it, mm -hmm. stand up, walk out the door, quit, change up, leave the relationships. Like the only reason most people live in the city is because our parents live there. Well, guess what? Your great grandparents moved from Europe or, or Asia or somewhere to come here, pick, pick yeah. up city and go like, yeah. You know, especially now that you can work from anywhere. Something we didn't talk about, I want to go back, and this isn't to, to talk about my investing your leaders course, but it, it's worthwhile for people taking it. My obsession as a leader has always been to grow my people. And I've always felt that the more I grow the skills of my people, the more they'll grow the brand for me. And the whole reason for me launching the investing your leaders course was to show and, and give companies the tools that most companies don't have in place. Or if they do, it'll take them a year or two years to put all these tools in place to grow their leaders. And I've just always believed that the, I was on a clubhouse room last night with a couple thousand people. And I was one of the, the speakers on this room in clubhouse. And they were talking about what is it that gives the entrepreneur or the CEO the most freedom? And I, and I came in and said, growing their people, because the more I grow their skills, the more I don't have to do stuff, the more I can work on strategy, the more a VP grows their people, the more that the VP can work on the bigger issues, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about flipping the org chart upside down. I have the CEO at the bottom and I literally draw org charts upside down. The CEO at the bottom, supporting the VPs, supporting the managers, supporting the employees who are all supporting the customers. And then everyone can see the vivid vision and you build your company inside the core purpose and your core values. Mm -hmm. It's almost like an, like an inverted pyramid with the vivid vision at the top. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that people invest in their leaders and grow their people, the more you don't have those problems. You know, if people are complaining about meetings, teach them how to run meetings, teach them how to show up at meetings. 
Elon Musk came out about a year ago and put a tweet out and he said, you know, if you're in a shitty leading meeting, stand up and leave the meeting. Mm-hmm. And I've known him for 25 years. I sent him a text. I'm like, no, fix meetings and your employees won't be in the shitty meetings to have to leave. Right. Like fix the root cause. So that's another module in, in the course as well is just to teach people not only how to run them, but how do you attend a meeting? How do you participate in the meeting? How do you speak up in a meeting, right? And to give the employees that confidence as well. Hmm. Anyway, it's a bit of a segue, but I think it's Yeah, important. no, I mean, that's, that's one of your books, right? Well, it's important as leaders to, if we invest in our people and we grow our people, we won't have to replace them. Right. And especially Gen Y, one of the things that Gen Y wants more than anything is career development. Yeah. So if, if you're not giving it to them, they're going to go somewhere else. But if you are giving it to them, they'll scale. You and I talked a little bit about um, remote work earlier and, and we we're kind of talking about what, what are you seeing? Uh, are more companies hiring folks remotely? Are they open to it? Are you yeah. seeing a change since COVID? I'm well, first, so I used to coach um, the CEO of Sprint, Marcelo Clare, who's now the CEO of WeWork. Um, he built and sold his first company for over a billion dollars is when I first met him. And I coached his second in command, Jamie Jones, for 18 months at Sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to Marcelo about what's happening at WeWork, and they're really excited about the future of the remote, remote workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've been talking to a lot of my guests on the second in command podcast who are running companies. And typically I interview like the 50 to 5,000 employee companies. Mm-hmm. They're not going back to offices. They're, they're across the board saying, yeah, we're going to shrink our footprint by 80%. You know, we might keep 20% of our office. Mm-hmm. Twitter told all of their employees don't come back to work until July. Mm-hmm. Um, Shopify is shutting down their 5,000 person office in Ottawa. So yeah, it's pretty much unanimous across the board. Companies are going with the remote workforces, allowing people to be digital nomads. Um, there's whole other issues of, you know, people with young kids and how it's hard. So I think there'll be, we'll have to have places and, you know, hoteling opportunities for them to use workspaces, but yeah, companies, it opens up a whole new, like, how can you possibly expect the absolute best person for that job and your team and they live the core values and they have the behavioral traits lives within 30 minutes of where you like, forget it. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Mark Cuban. I've mentioned him before um, on, on my LinkedIn and, and I reached out to him and he was pretty responsive and I, I met him once, but I remember he, uh, he, he said about the NBA, this was maybe 15 years ago. He said, what are the chances that the best, the best NBA player just happens to live in the US? So that's why he does so much recruiting and scouting or overseas even Houston, and got dirt. Right? Like you can say like all the best Houston players live in Houston, what right. happen? Right. Now, Canadian hockey players, that, that's not true. They're all from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, you know, you're obviously a busy guy doing a lot of different things. I'm always curious kind of what tools, techniques somebody uses in order to manage their day, you know, whether it's technology or processes is kind of taking a little different different term from from hiring and, and bringing people on. But I'm, I'm curious as we're kind of getting, we've got about 10 minutes left. So I want to make yeah. sure. It's I'll, give you, I'll give you something slightly different than a tool. For me, it's more simplicity. I just try to keep it simple, not the whole kiss thing, but I wasn't the smart guy in school, right? I got 62% in high school. I got 63 or something in university. So I, I wasn't the smart kid. I, I wasn't the MBA. I didn't know how to do the complicated models. So I looked for the cheat sheets. And for me in business, it's all about the cheat sheets. Again, like even in this Invest in Your Leaders course, it's like, here's the cheat sheets to grow people. Just do that. 
you know, is it the perfect interviewing system? No, but perfect doesn't scale. Is mm -hmm. it the perfect, but it's 12 really good ones. So for me, it's all, it's about momentum, creating momentum. Mm -hmm. So I work, I work very focused. Um, I say no a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm very clear on my, you know, Simon Sinek, who, who did the whole golden circle and start with why was on our board four years before he wrote his book. So I understand my core purpose helps me to say no to the wrong companies, the wrong opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I say no a lot. Um, I, I work in, in kind of momentum, creating momentum. Um, and then I try to figure out the who, not how, mm -hmm. right? Um, instead of trying to figure out how to do everything, it's who could I outsource that to or who, who's a freelancer that could do it or who could I delegate it to because that momentum will create momentum. You know, I ran a house painting company, but I didn't paint houses, <laughs> right? So, so tell, tell me what you charge for a, uh, a keynote typically. My, so my keynote is 30,000 plus travel. And then my Zoom keynotes are 5,000 clearly with no travel because my commute's pretty close. Okay. So one of my reasons for asking it. So if you've got a question, it's a $30,000 opportunity. You've got eight minutes to ask it. Um, so if anybody's got a question, something that you want to ask an employer or a candidate standpoint, I'm interested in kind of how, how do you learn? Who, who do you learn from? Who are you paying attention to? Is it books? Is it podcasts? It's, um, it's first off mastermind groups. So I've always believed if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. So I try to plug myself into a number of different mastermind groups. So I've been in the Genius Network for six years. I've gone to War Room. I've gone to three baby bathwater events. I've gone to five mastermind talks events. I've been in strategic coach for seven years. And I've gone to the main five-day TED conference for nine years. Mm -hmm. So I'm always plugged into these events where I'm just not the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely devour a lot of podcasts and, and digital content. Um, and then I only really read books if they're related to something I'm working on. Mm. You know, Otherwise, I feel like I'm learning too much at random. So mm -hmm. I'm usually trying to learn about what I'm working on right now. Mm. Uh, that's a specific concept. Yeah, like if I'm, if I'm, let's say I'm going to be hiring four people this month, read who, right? Or read chapter two of Double Double. Like, mm -hmm. I, and then if, I, if I'm done my hiring for three months, why do I want to read about hiring? Because I won't, in the learning environment, the learner has to know that there's a gap between what they know and what, what they want to learn, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, that's how, I, that's how I fast forward things. Got it. Did you have a question that came in? From Isha asking for some career advice for early or mid-level folks. So, yeah, one one addition is to um, you know take on the big projects. You know, ask for more responsibility. Stretch yourself. Um, your leaders are always overwhelmed. Look for like just say, what can I take off your plate? What can I work on? Like, ask for that additional responsibility, and then really grow yourself. Really keep working on growing your own skills. I love it when like if one of my employees came to me and said, hey, I saw this Invest in Your Leaders course. Can, can the company pay me for it, pay for me to do it? It's only 597 bucks. I'd be like, yeah, take the course. Mm -hmm. Or if the company's like, I don't know, I'll split it with you. How about I pay for 300 and you pay for 300? Like when you show that kind of initiative to your own growth and taking on responsibility, you'll excel for sure. Mm -hmm. Next thing is to make sure that you're the person who will tell your boss what's going wrong, but do it privately. Do it one-on-one, -on -one. pull them aside and say, hey, I, I don't feel good about this, or I saw this as a problem. Not ratting other people out, right. but just debate them and discuss them, but do it in a safe place so you don't put your boss against the corner. Love it. We have a couple more here. Uh, what qualities do you look for in your mentors? So you've had some 
Sounds like some good mentors. Yeah, I had a mentor who was being groomed as the second in command at Starbucks, and I got him to, to mentor me for about two years when I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I first outlined the five core areas of the business that I wanted to get better at, and then I outlined three areas of my life that I wanted to improve on. And then I tried to find a brand that was similar to what I was building. So multi-unit operations, strong culture, strong leadership development. It all kind of pointed to Starbucks. So then I looked at their org chart and I found roles of people that were similar to mine and I just reached out to them. Hmm. You know, I, I, one of my biggest pet peeves is people on Facebook. Oh, I need a coach. Who, who should I get as a coach? Really? It'd be like an athlete saying, I'm an athlete. I need a coach. Well, are you a baseball player, a basketball right. player, a swimmer, a gymnast? Like, Right. You, if you're a gymnast, you don't want a golf coach. Right. So you have to be very specific on what you want to get better at. And then from there, get someone to help you. Got it. Well, now we've got a ton of questions coming in. We've got five minutes. So um, what are some of the key leadership traits for team success in the remote work environment? So are you, are you seeing some? Yeah, definitely the ability to, um, to focus and prioritize, the ability to collaborate, the ability to get shit done, deliver on your promises. You know, for me, my three core values are deliver what you promise, respect the individual and pride in all you do. So I'm looking for people that live those and exhibit those, I think are key. Uh, do you have a, or do you still guide and mentor young entrepreneurs who are just starting out? Um, I, my core, part of my core business, other than the COO Alliance, which is this network of second in commands, I coach companies and CEOs, but it's for a fee. So I'm paid $48,000 for a year to coach them. They get 90 minutes a month with me and then they pay me a check three years later for what they feel the value was. So I don't really do it as a pro bono thing. Most of my pro bono is, you know, speaking events or webinars or the podcasts that I host. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I don't really, I don't really mentor young entrepreneurs. What, what books would you recommend? You talked a little bit about the, you read and is there any specific books or it's like you said, you kind of target what you want to learn. It's like, yeah. It's, it's like saying, you know, what music should I listen to? I don't know. Fuck, what music do you like? Like, let's start there. <laughs> right? So, you know, I'll give you some examples of it. If you want a really good book on management, read The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard. It's all grounded in science on situational leadership that he and Paul Hersey developed. It's solid, 30 years old, still the best book. Uh, stuff on strategy and, and kind of building a real business, good to great, but read it three or four times and, and do what it says. If you want a great one on interviewing, read Who by Jeff Smart. I think his dad's book, Top Grading, is overwhelmingly long at 800 pages, who is amazingly synthesized. If you want a really good book on getting shit done and, and, and managing through tough times, read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Um, and then one book that I really loved recently around simplicity and, and really making everything simple is called Insanely Simple. And it's about the, the systems internally that were used at Apple to really scale and keep things simple. I love it. I haven't heard of that one. Um, hard thing. I would, I would tell people like read, read my first book, Double Double. It's really, yeah. really strong. Yeah. By the way, the reason I wrote the book Meetings Suck is for every employee at every book, uh, every company to read the book Meetings Suck. Mm -hmm. I got companies buying like 300 copies at a time and giving it to every employee and saying, read it by Monday. I like it. Um, just right now, just the companies that you work with or, or companies that are just out there i'm curious but which which companies do you admire for their culture leadership which do you think are doing a really strong job i don't think i look i don't think i'm looking externally for that anymore i'm 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 very I'm, I'm so deeply focused on some of the clients that i'm coaching you know i coach a company called acceleration partners 
Bob Glazier. I think he's ranked number two or number three in the United States to work for on Glassdoor today. You know, they've got like 200 and some odd reviews on Glassdoor with a 4.9 rating. And he's a complete remote company, but he's been remote since day one, Mm -hmm. you know, with 150 employees. I'm impressed with them. I'm impressed with Tenuity, which I coached from 40 people up to 700. And, you know, they're they're in the top 10 to work for in the United States on Glassdoor because they obsess about culture. I'm really more impressed with some of my clients and their ability to focus and execute and, and obsess about people. Yeah. Well, so way, I've, always, I've always believed on that as well. Your customer is not number one, they're number two. You have to obsess about employee satisfaction first, employee net promoter score first. Mm-hmm. If your employees are number one, they'll take care of your customer. Mm-hmm. But if your employees start feeling the customer is more important, they're gonna feel like they're overworked. But if you obsess about your employees being happy, obsess about investing in your employees, obsessed about their growth, they'll go through brick walls for you to grow their company. The first time I ever heard that was with Southwest Airlines, right? They used to always talk about their numbers. Yeah. Um, tons of questions coming in. Unfortunately, can't get to all of them. Uh, I know uh, folks are probably going to reach out to you, Cameron. If they, if they want to do that, are some best places at Twitter? Is it email? What's the best place to find you? Yeah, if they go to CameronHerald.com is my main website. COO Alliance, if they have a second in command, they should really plug their COO Alliance into that for sure. And then the Invest in Your Leaders course, for sure, they should all be taking a look at. All five of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Uh, and then the second in command podcast on, you know, uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts, really. Perfect. Well, this was recorded, so if anybody missed anything or they want to oh, send great. it to a friend, they can they can find it, uh, and we'll we'll send it out, and we'll we'll copy you on that email, Cameron. And if they want me to ever do a similar session to this or a normal presentation to their company, and they want to book me over Zoom for five thousand to do it, or in person for thirty, but over Zoom is amazing. They can send me an email, and we can line that up too. Perfect. Well, thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it. Cameron. Cannot cannot thank you enough. Thanks Please for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. So Murray Resources and Resume Spice, appreciate bringing you guys this. So thanks again. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Love it.